I wonder if you turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 9. I know it's said uh, on the, uh, the outline that we'll be looking at four chapters. Uh, that just isn't possible, okay? Not today, anyway. So, well, I'm sure it is, but we're just going to look at, at one of the plagues in particular. So, chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or this time, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I've raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out on the field and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff towards the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down on everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place that did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is right and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. 
The flax and barley were destroyed, since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripen later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands towards the Lord. The thunder and the hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the earth. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Let's pray together. Father, in your mercy, we pray that you would open these words to us, that they might speak deeply to us as deep calls to deep. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is living and it is active and it is able to pierce bone and marrow and even to the depths of our soul. It is able to bring life and hope and healing and truth. So, Lord, in your mercy, let your spirit fall that we might hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Very occasionally, uh, but more often than not, actually, words of songs in the service before just come together and convince me that God has given me something to say. Uh, And that happened today, actually. I was all a bit flustered after the first service, and uh, I didn't have a chance to look at all at the the worship guide, which is why I didn't pray for Kate Brown, because I didn't know it was on there. And then Andy's refrain, or Sheila's refrain, I don't know who did it this time, was that God never changes. Sheila. God never changes. It's kind of a, a joint effort when they get together on this. God never changes. And that's the first line of my sermon here. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the found- so I love it. God's been speaking to us. It's the foundation of our faith. We can come to God because he is unchanging. He is solid. He is rock. All other ground is shifting sand. But God is faithful, unchanging, secure, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a tower that we can run into. He is a shield behind which we are safe. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Yesterday, today, and forever. Alpha and Omega. I am the one who was, who is, and is to come. God is the same. It's the foundation of our faith. One of the things that is often said about God, that is contrary to that, is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are slightly different. And maybe as we come to a passage like this, that gets emphasized a little bit. Here is God who seems to be throwing out plagues like they're going out of fashion 
on Egypt, and yet we don't see God doing that today. Although some people argue we do. And of course, UKIP very famously a few weeks ago said that these, uh, these rainstorms that we're having and the flooding that we're having is a result of God's judgment upon us. Have you heard that? You may have even thought that. That this is God's judgment on us. UKIP said particularly for passing the marriage bill. Uh, and if that's true, then uh, the Somerset levels are, you know, a flesh pot of evil, aren't they? Really, that doesn't get much worse than that. So that's, that's really what's been being said, that it's a nationwide judgment of God. And it's important we consider that. What is God saying to us through the storms, through the floods? Is there a whisper of God's voice for us to hear? But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want to show a a number of things. I want to show God's grace and God's glory in these plagues. There are ten plagues. There's uh, the plague. They get progressively worse. There's the plague of blood. The Nile turns to blood. Then there's the plague of frogs. The plague of gnats, the plague of flies, the plague of livestock dying, the plague of boils, the plague of hail, the plague of locusts, the plague of darkness, and finally, the plague of the death of the firstborn children. Uh, They're very scary, and one builds upon another. Verse 16 tells us why these are happening, why this has come to this. And actually, uh, myself and Mike Law preached on this from the other side of it. We are in the midst of it here in Exodus 9, but Mike, Law and myself preached the other side of it when Moses told Pharaoh exactly what was, uh, when God told Moses exactly what was going to happen. And I'd really commend that to you, Uh, particularly Mike Law's. Um, He preached it in the evening of the 1st of December. It's called Doing It God's Way. Uh, And Mike really looks at the whole issue of God hardening Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardening his own heart and and wonderfully looks at that. (coughs) Excuse me. I really commend that to you, to listen to that, because God has said this is what will happen. They They will reject you. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will harden his heart. So please check out that, that download. Listen to that. You find it on the website. But the reason it's here, verse 16, is this. I have raised you up. <coughs> this is God speaking to Pharaoh. I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That's the reason for these plagues. That they would know God's power and his name would be proclaimed throughout the earth. That God would be glorified. This is that God would be glorified. And we're going to look at that in this sermon. The other thing I want us to look at is the grace here. Because there is massive amounts of grace. God is the same yesterday, today and forever. And God... Even here, in the midst of the plagues, poured out on Egypt, God is still graceful, full of grace. I've got seven places where we see that. (coughs) 
first. Verses 13 and 14 here. Confront Pharaoh. Confront Pharaoh. That's the first place we see God's grace here. God does not do this secretly. He does this publicly. Pharaoh is told, this is going to happen. But if you let my people go, it will not happen. Verse 14, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues. So the first place of God's grace is that he doesn't do this secretly or behind closed doors. He doesn't just unleash this on Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. He actually gives them fair warning. First sign of God's grace here. Second sign of God's grace here is that he's going easy on them. Verse 15 For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you all, actually, all off the earth. God says, I'm going easy on you. Doesn't look like it, but you think this is bad. You've no idea how bad this really could be. The third grace is found in verse 18. Therefore, at this time tomorrow... I will send the worst hail storm. He's given them 24 hours notice. Given them time to make preparations, to do things, to change. And that's the fourth grace. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter. He says, if you do that, I'm giving you 24 hours, bring your people in, bring your livestock in. If you've got some stuff you can bring in, some some barley and flax, bring that in, and it won't be destroyed. I'm giving you 24 hours to get this done. So again, God's grace, because if you leave it out, it's going to die. But if you bring it in, it's not going to die. God's grace. The fifth grace I see In this passage is in verse 26. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen where the Israelites were. God's people are preserved. Not just for their sake, but for the sake of the Egyptians. Because they can look and see. And say, hold on, God's doing something here. God's at work here. Why is it that the children of God are safe? And we are not. It's another grace. It's a revelation of God's love towards his people that should speak to the Egyptians. The sixth grace here is verse 31. The agriculturalists might have noticed it. The flax and the barley were destroyed since the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bloom. However, verse 32, the wheat and the spelt were not destroyed because they ripen later. So God's grace is at work again, preserving half the harvest. The wheat will not be destroyed. will be later. But in this case, it it won't. God is showing his grace. And finally, the seventh grace here is that when 
Pharaoh said, okay, I've sinned, I'm sorry, even though he didn't mean it, even though Moses and God knew he would change his mind, that Moses prayed and it stopped. And the hail stopped. It's full of grace. We often miss that. We see this as a, a terrible judgment, a terrible plague. But actually, it's full of God and God's mercy. But the bigger question is, how does God show his glory here? How does God show his, his power and his glory that it might be proclaimed over the whole earth? Well, that's a, a much bigger question. How does God show his glory. And we need to think a little bit outside of this passage this morning to fully understand it. First passage I want us to go to is Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. So I wonder, it, it might be a little bit of a treasure hunt this morning, but I wonder if you'd turn to that, please. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Galatians chapter 3. Verses 24 and 25. If you want, because it's a paragraph, we'll start at 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Verse 24. So the law was put in charge... To lead us to Christ. Just put your finger on that in charge bit. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. So that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now, Paul is talking about a huge theme here. Keep your finger on in charge. Talking about a massive theme here. The place of the law. Now, when we think of the law, we, we think of a set of rules. Uh, and, and that is true. There's nothing wrong with that. The law is a set of rules. But much more than that, the law to a Jewish reader, to a Hebrew reader, was the first five books of the Bible the Torah. That's the law. So Jesus will say the law and the prophets were until John. What does he mean by that? He means that the first five books of the Bible and the prophets, which are all the book of the prophets in our Bible, these were the, the teachings of God in the Old Testament. We have two other types of literature in the Old Testament. We have historical, kings, chronicles and that. And we have the books of poetry and wisdom. Okay, they're taken together, which are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Okay, Song of Songs. So, poetry and wisdom, one type of book in the Bible. We have history, another type of the book in the Bible. And then we have the law, the first five books of the Bible. And then we have the prophets, all the others towards the end of the, New Test of the Old Testament before the New so the law for a Jewish reader is those first five books as well as the Ten Commandments. That's 
the law. Now, I hope you've got your fingers still of in charge, because that word in charge is a great word. Sometimes it's translated, ESV does this well, as guardian. The law was a guardian to lead us to Christ. So the law, the first five books of the Bible, and the Ten Commandments, and all those singular laws and commands, the law was a guardian to lead us to Jesus. Now that word in charge is guardian. In Greek, the word is paedagogus. 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 And this is the definition of paedagogus, this word in charge or guardian. A guardian, a paedagogos is a guardian and a guide of boys among the Greek and Roman world. The name was applied to trustworthy slaves who were charged with the duty of supervising the life and morals of boys belonging to the upper classes. The boys were not allowed so much as to step out of the house without them before arriving at the age of manhood. So here we have the paedagogus as a, 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 a supervisory teacher. And the law was a supervisory teacher in order to lead the children of God to adulthood. Now this is a really important concept for us to understand and, and know. So we have to think of children, uh, Israel as children. And we think of the church, which is Israel and Gentiles together, grafted together by God, as the adult. This is really important for us to, to grab a hold of. The church, the church does not replace Israel. The church is grafted into Israel. But Israel comes of age. So Paul says, I, I, I thought like a child, acted like a child, but now I'm a man. And that's very much what happens with Israel. It comes to adulthood when Jesus is born. And we need to see the Old Testament as the teaching and the training of a child to adulthood when Jesus would come. This is very important. The Old Testament is God-breathed. 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy 3.16. It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching. It is useful for rebuking and correcting and training us in righteousness. Training us, leading us, to Jesus. That's why the Old Testament is there. Okay, let's go to another passage to see this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. Now here we're talking about the law as in uh, the sacrificial system, 
the, the blood of the goats and the lambs and all this, that and the other. Because we're going to see this next week when we have the night that nobody slept with the Passover lamb and the blood coming. So this is all part of the law. The law of the sacrificial system, the sacrifices brought to God, the sheep brought before God, the doves killed, the oxen killed. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 7. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. That's really important. The law, the Old Testament, first five books, the Torah, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If they could, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshipper would have been cleansed once and for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. We'll just pause there for a second. What the writer here is saying is that the sacrificial system was only a reminder of sins. The law given to Moses of how you sacrificed animals, day of atonement, Passover lamb, it was a reminder of sin. It didn't actually cleanse anyone. If it really had to cleanse someone, they wouldn't have needed to keep doing it. But it didn't, so you needed to keep doing it. But those sacrifices, verse 3, are an annual reminder of sins, verse 4. Because it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Verse 5, therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrificed an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Now this is a really important concept for us. Understanding the place of the Old Testament. Understanding these plagues, if you like, and how they relate to us. They're all training. This is how God is going to demonstrate his power and make his name known throughout the world. Verse 16 of Exodus chapter 9, the place we started. This is how God is going to make himself known. So the blood of bulls and oxen were good because they were training the people, getting them ready for Messiah, getting them ready for Jesus, Yeshua, his coming. They wouldn't have understood. If Jesus had come straight after Adam's fall, or had come instead of Moses, the world was not yet prepared for his coming. They needed to know the full story. And that's what the writer in Hebrews is saying there at the beginning. Here we go. We're going to act it out as a timeline. Okay, for you. I've done this kind of thing before. So here we are. This is, um, well, let, let's start here. Let's say that this is 2014 right here. So this is 2014 right here. Uh, and let's go back. Uh, this is 1066 here. Uh, and uh, the Normans invade 
uh, Hastings. Uh, so that's here. Then we can go back a, another little way, and here we are, right in the middle. This is Jesus' his death, 33, 34, 32 AD, somewhere around there. Jesus' death on a cross. We can take another step, and here, here we are, 1000 BC. So you see how this timeline's going? We started over here, 2014, and now we're over here, 1000 BC, and David is writing, The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. We go back another 500 odd years, 544 years or so, to 1544 BC, and we have this happening, the Exodus, or thereabouts, somewhere around about then. And we have the Exodus happening. We take another step, and maybe another 500 years or so, and, and here we are at Abraham, meeting God. Uh, and God revealing himself, saying, I'm going to bless all nations on earth through your family. Okay? We looked at that in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless history through your family. And then now we're into prehistory. And no one really knows how long or, or full this is. It might stretch for miles and miles. It might just be a few steps. We don't know. But here I am. I'm off the timeline. And I'm now in prehistory. Nothing has been made. I'm off the timeline, and there is God doing what C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton called the great dance. Father-loving son, son-loving father, spirit-loving father, spirit-loving son, son-loving spirit. And it's a divine dance as they glorify and love each other. And in within the Godhead that never ends, this eternity before the world has begun, God contemplates humanity. And in contemplating humanity, he knows that they will fall. Because he's going to give them free choice. They're going to be able to choose to love him or choose to reject him. And as soon as God contemplates humanity, he sees the result of that decision. Because he's all seeing, all knowing. And he sees that they will put a fist up to him and turn away from him. So at that moment, outside of time, outside of history, the son says to the father... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. We will make a people. They will rebel. And I will pay the price. And so in Revelation, we talk about the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. That's over here. Because here we are, 2014, and we don't know how many years we have ahead of us. They might be long, they might be short, but we do know there's a day coming. We call it Judgment Day, when we'll be outside the timeline again. And we will live forever with God in eternity. And there we will see the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. Revelation chapter 5 says, I saw a lion, a lion of the tribe of Judah that looked like a lamb slain. And it's quite amazing, you see, because this death that happened here has an effect on all eternity. You can't kill God without it having ripples that stretch into the very time and space continuum. If there are other dimensions and other whatevers. God fills them because God died here. Jesus died here and was risen again. 
has an incredible effect on all of eternity. The wounds he suffered here, he will carry with him here. You will be whole. You will be well. But Jesus will have wounds in his hands and a wound in his side. And you see, the people of God, the children of God, needed a ton of training to get from here to understand here. And so the New Testament, Paul in particular, tells us that at the right time, Christ died for sinners. With all this training happening the, the Jesus film is as a movie that has been shown to tribes all around the world. And, and it's been very effective. But what people found was that the people didn't know the story. So we would just jump in at the life of Jesus. And it didn't make complete sense. What the experts found that is if they told them the history, they told them the story of the garden and the fallout from humanity's sin and the story of Moses and the captivity of Israel and then the fooling around and the turning away and the apostasy. If they told the full story, the Jesus film made total sense. That was God's plan. To train and show The prophets show us God's heart, what he delights in, and what grieves him. The law, in the same way, shows us God's power and God's thoughts on sin and God's judgment towards sin. So in the Old Testament, we see that God has very immediate and very physical punishment. We see that throughout the Old Testament. But that is training. It's leading the people to understand what God is like. So God blesses physically the people that follow him. So here we saw the place of Goshen where where the Israelites lived. They were preserved. There was a physical blessing for them. There was a physical punishment for the Egyptians that still refused to go God's way, who didn't get their people in. A physical punishment, a physical blessing. And we see that throughout the the Old Testament, the physical blessing of the promised land. The land is so important. It was a physical thing, a physical blessing, still is. But it was a physical blessing that was actually revealing the spiritual truth, because this is training, the spiritual truth of heaven and hell. You look for that in the Old Testament, you won't find much talk of heaven, and you won't find much talk of hell. It's almost non-existent in the Old Testament. They talked about Sheol, Hades, a holding room for people. It wasn't until they'd had the training of physical blessing, physical punishment, that they could, phys- they could fully understand 
the spiritual reality of heaven and hell, being separated from God and being with God. So God would pour out these very physical and immediate punishments on Sodom and Gomorrah, on Egypt, on Hezekiah when he gets proud and he turns into a leper. All these things, immediate and sudden, God's physical power being shown. But underneath it all, that's the shadow. The physical is the shadow. But underneath it all is the teaching and training of the substance, which will be in eternity with God. And God is saying, this is so serious. Separation from me, hardening your heart to me, is so serious. Because it leads to an eternity without me. So yeah, your crops have died and your your cattle have died. But you carry on this way. You will live an eternity without me. That's really important we understand. Otherwise the Old Testament makes very little sense to us. So what about us? Well, are the floods a consequence of this country's sin? Honestly, I don't know. If you pushed me, I'd say, I don't think so. I think that when Jesus died here, he took the sin of the world upon him. He took the consequence of all our sin, all our murder, all our incest, all our hatred, all the rape, every sin, every unfaithfulness was poured out on him. The sin we've done and the sin done to us, all of it carried here. In fact, in the New Testament, after Jesus' death, we see God acting in judgment physically very rarely. God, God speaks through Paul to the church in Corinth and he says, look, when you come to the table, do it in the right way. Because some of you are not coming in the right way. They were coming drunk. They were feeding themselves and not caring about anyone else. And that's why some of you are ill and why some of you have fallen asleep so that you will not be judged by the rest of the world. That's what he says. He says, I'm taking some of you out of it so you'll be protected. It's not a punishment. It's a protection. Check that out in Corinthians. The other place we see God's immediate And very purposeful judgment is on Sophia and Ananias. But apart from those places, I'm not sure we see it elsewhere. Maybe on Herod, perhaps. We don't see it very often. It's rarer and it's more specific. It's on individuals, not on nations. And again, sometimes it's a protection to protect us, God's children, from going further and further from him. But it's rarer. So are the floods God's judgment on us? If you push me, I don't think so. But perhaps Jesus tells us how we should truly think about them. So this is the final place we're going to jump to. We're nearly done. Well done for keeping with me. Luke chapter 13. This is really important teaching, so I I don't want to skim on it. Because it relates to how we think about the Bible. And how we understand God and the beauty of this event when, when God himself, Jesus Christ, took the sins of the world upon him. 
It's really important. So how would Jesus, if we ran up to Jesus today and said, Jesus, have you heard about the floods in Dawlish? Have you heard about the floods in the Somerset levels? Have you heard about that little boy that died in Chertsey? Jesus, what, what do you think of that? Well, someone did exactly that. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Basically, some Galileans had gone to worship God. They'd taken their lambs and their oxen and things. And Herod came in with some soldiers. Not Herod, Pilate came in with some soldiers and killed the worshippers. Now, of course, to the the children of Israel, used to this being trained by God, this physical punishment happening as they were worshipping is a symbol of God's displeasure on them. Do you see that? They're they're still with that childlike mindset that punishment must equal God's displeasure. Look what Jesus says. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans are worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. Can't get much clearer than that. See, they're thinking like children. But after Jesus' death, they're going to have to think like adults. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now what's he talking about? Is he talking about being killed as they sacrifice? No. The word perish is much more severe. He's talking about eternal death. Can you see the transition here? How he transits from this this childlike thinking And he transits into adult thinking. This great transition that goes on. He's talking about eternal judgment. Eternal death. Not just physical one. He goes on. It's like he's got a newspaper open in front of him. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no! So perhaps if we said to Jesus, Somerset levels, is that your punishment from those people from Somerset? Jesus is saying, no. Do you think they're any worse than anyone else in this country? All have sinned. All have fallen short. All stand in need of a saviour. All stand in need of this event that stands at the centre of history. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but he did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I have been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found anything. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig round it and fertilize it. 
If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, cut it down. Here we see God's heart. This is God speaking. God is the gardener in this case. And he's speaking and saying, I'm going to be patient. For I am unwilling that any should perish. I long that all might be saved. I am not slow in keeping my promises, as some people understand it. To me, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. But I am patient, calling all people everywhere to repentance. So that's what Jesus would say. Are these floods from you because they're evil? No. But you, Andy Cordwell, are you right with me? Is your heart in tune with mine? Does it beat when mine beats? Does it care about the things I care about? Is it angry about the things I'm angry about? You need to repent, Andy Caldwell, Mutley Baptist Church. What is repentance? Metanoia, a change of mind and direction. It means going from our own way to going God's way. It means recognizing our sin, turning away from it, making restitution and serving him. That was on offer to Pharaoh. He saw God's power. He saw God's hand. But we're told, even after this, Pharaoh sinned and hardened his heart. What about you? My lovely, beautiful church. What about you, God says? What about you? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a rock under our feet. Without your word, we would be lost. We wouldn't know you. Thank you for your spirit that breathes upon your word and changes it from a a dead letter into a living word. We thank you that he leads us into all truth and communicates God's love for us. We thank you for your spirit and your word. You are truly beautiful, God. We thank you for your training and your instruction. But we thank you more than anything for Jesus, for his death, at the crux of the world, his death that makes all things new, born that people no more may die, living that we might have hope, 
dying, buying us from sin and death. We thank you for the nation of Israel. We pray for its peace. And we pray for its turning to you. We thank you for all your promises poured upon them. And we pray that you would bring them all to fruition. We thank you that you have trained us and you lead us to you be the glory forever. Amen.